everybody. I'm Casey Ford. And I'm Sarah Cuvia. And this is Let the Good Crimes Roll. And we are rolling into part three of our of our documentary, Three Mile Island. Yes, and I'm so glad you're doing this one because... Did you watch it? <laughs> yes, remember? <laughs> oh, you watched episode four. <laughs> Were you wait, like, wait, wait, man, wait. did we skip something? <laughs> Because there's a lot that happens in episode three. So after we recorded last time, I was so interested in what was going to happen. So I went home and immediately started watching. Well, I thought I was picking up on episode three. Well, how did you skip it? I don't know. It just happened. And so I was I was like, well, oh, I don't have to do a script for this one. So I'm just you know, going to do my thing with my I'm going to play my phone and listen to it and all that kind of stuff. And so I was like 85 percent paying attention. And then so I get into it and I was like, you know, I think I may have skipped the third episode. Did I stop and go back to the third episode? Nope. Girl, you missed a good episode. Oh, no, no. I went after I finished the fourth one. I was like, I should probably go back. And go listen. back. So I went back and watched the third. But now everything is mixed up chronologically yeah. in my head. So I'm glad you're well, doing this one. I'm going to take the same way I went with um, our Squatchers one. Mm-hmm. This could have been three episodes because <laughs> I feel like so episode one is all about the accident. Episode two is all about everybody freaking the hell out mm-hmm. episode three is where where it's at yeah it's where it's where the the drama starts i think someone was like where's the true crime and i'm yeah. like it's approached in this episode <laughs> yeah. we're here uh so before we dive into it i just want to give a shout out to her name is laney arnold but she goes by lane z so she was born in baton rouge she was raised in walker which is close to us that's where my hubby's from mm-hmm. she had mentioned to me that she had just moved back from los angeles but she is a recording artist and you can find her music on spotify on apple but she goes by lanes or l-a-n-z i want to let everyone know exactly where you can find her her music is really good. Like I went and listened to it. What kind of what kind of music is it? You opened up my heart. You love me with my scars. Uh, if I get you, then I will hear you. Cause I love you. Oh, I love you. You opened up my eyes. The life I realized. Tell you all the time. You beautiful. You can find her under Lane Z Love Potion or Instagram Lane Z is me. And it's Lane's, y'all. I'm just saying. Lanes. Okay. Lane Z. So give a shout out to her. And I asked her, you know, are you planning on doing anything as far as tra- starting to travel, play uh, live performances? And she says she has a few things in the works. So, Laney, keep us posted and we will let everyone who listens keep updated. But if go check her out on Spotify. And we're going to give y'all a little sample. Take me for a drive down the sea Tell me all your lines and I'll turn to say Light me up my lip, caught up in the sea Got me soaring high like a plane It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. She sounds fantastic. She really does. Lainey, we, we need you to come in here and uh and come perform live for us. So check her out. Like I said, uh, you can check her out on Spotify, Apple. She is so pretty. Look how pretty she oh, is. Oh, she is so pretty. I know. So, Lanes, Lainey, thank you for reaching out to us. Keep us posted on where you're at, where you're performing, what we can do to help promote you because we really, I, I really have enjoyed your music, have been listening. And um, I'm a follower now, so you can follow her on Spotify. So just go check her oh, out. That's awesome. That's I so know. cool. I love supporting like local people. Like, right. Just, especially in the arts like that. I just, I love it. That's yeah, just awesome. Yeah, because as two people who do the bare minimum to do a podcast, <laughs> 
<laughs> even what we do is a lot of work. Yeah. And so for someone like her, like this girl's probably busting her butt day in, day yes. out. Because y'all, more so than anything, the biggest thing about any type of like thing like this, like music, is all about promotion. I mean, mm-hmm. you can have a fantastic product, but if, if nobody, nobody knows, knows about, about it, it, yeah. And I hate promotions. I'm I know. Not gonna lie. I it's know. not my far- farte. It's not my <laughs> my farte. How do you say that word? Forte. Forte. Oh, like a four. I'm like fart. A forte. It's not my forte. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You remember that time that um, we got invited to that? I think it was like Woody Overton's. It was, but it happened to be on like a Friday night and it was cold out. And me and you were both like, we're just fogies. Like we, this could be, this could be like the moment that like just thrust us into the limelight. And we're both like, but it's cold outside. Yeah. It's so cold. Yeah. That, that is the stereotypical us. (laughs) I know. Like we've got to get out there and promote, but we suck at it. I don't like leaving central past three o'clock. I just don't. No. So, I mean, maybe in my 20s I would have, but. I'm like an old lady. I don't like driving when it's dark out. The whole time I kept thinking, I was like, Amber would have gone. Amber, oh, Cousin I Amber think she gone. was mad. She um, was like, yeah. why didn't y'all call me? I would have gone with y'all. Because <laughs> we knew we weren't going to go. Yeah. And it that is not a representation of Woody or oh, of no. anybody. It like, we be, know. It would be a thrill to meet him. Yes. But did we? Uh, yeah. Because no. that's why that's why we're not making it any bigger than where we're at, you know? <laughs> hey we are making progress like maybe just in our own eyes but we are making progress i know if y'all haven't noticed um we finally qualified to put a little bit of commercials in our our stuff which i'm so excited yeah we haven't actually gotten paid but i know i think even still they've put like two dollars and fifty cents into a savings account for uh, for us (laughs) you know so woohoo every time i see like the i think we got like one for 15 cents i screenshotted it to casey and i was like like, you know we are rolling now we're not in the dark anymore was it we're not in the red yeah (laughs) well we're still kind of in the red but moving towards the black moving towards it we got a lot of big stuff planned though that i'm really excited about me too and it's gonna be it's gonna be fun so y'all hang on to your butts and speaking of hanging up to your butts uh let's let's go into this one this is a meltdown on Three Mile Island, episode three, The Whistleblower. So it's March of 1983. And y'all, this whole episode is Operator Rick. Mm-hmm. Just know that. This is this is yeah. all, this is the Rick show. This should have been episode three, Rick. Yeah. That's what it should have been called. So the episode starts and it's a reenactment. The guy that plays young Rick is so cute. <laughs> Do you not think he's hot? With I don't his, even remember what he looked like. With his little, he kind of looks like Jack from This Is Us. Uh-oh. A little Jack vibe a little bit. Okay. He's got like, they like totally made him stereotypical. He looked like he's from the 70s, but this is yeah, supposed to be the 80s. The 80s. In the reenactment, Rick is walking through his apartment and he's scared. He's got a gun. And you're like, what in the hell is going on? We learned that Rick lives in East Texas, but he was raised in the great state of Missouri. Yeah. Because, okay. you know, if you're from Missouri, it's mm-hmm. not Missouri. It's Yeah. It's Missouri. And that explains his accent. It does. Yeah. Oh, I thought Texas for sure. I, I was honestly thinking but more he, Texas. He but. does li- live in Texas. Like, like, because he ends up in Middleton because of, I mean, we'll get there, but basically because of the cleanup after mm-hmm. the fact. But he's a badass because mm-hmm. this, this is what makes me realize, like, people of today are such pansies because... He grew up during the Vietnam era mm-hmm. and he knew that he was going to be drafted. He said he knew it was inevitable. And sure enough, he came home one day, his wife was crying and she was holding his draft card. Can you imagine that happening today? No. Oh, I don't think the draft would 
these 18 go year- down well. Today. No, I, don't send the 18 year olds no, up today. They're God, a bunch of no. whiny babies. Jeez, Good God, peace, man. Did you know my dad had a draft number? Did he? Yeah, it was. It was. He said it was far enough down where it wasn't likely he was going to get drafted, but he said he remembered like how, his I mean, classmates. I don't know how that works. Like what? I guess as soon as you turn 18, you're issued a draft number. Yeah. And like once your number's called up, but he yeah. said he remembered like guys that were older than him, like mm-hmm. in his class, they would hear their number called and oh. just like put their heads down on their desk. Like, cause you know, Yo, that's he, almost that's like certain whole, death. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, like with Vietnam, I mean, that mm-hmm. was a, those poor guys, they went oh, over there and God. they didn't come back the same. Uh, no. And what was even worse is that people were not supportive of the war back mm-hmm. then. So they treated the soldiers who didn't have a choice like yeah, crap. Like I, that I will never understand. No. Like these guys are just serving their country, mm-hmm. whether they they were forced to go. Yeah. I mean, what did you do besides boohoo and cry? <laughs> like, I mean, you don't have to support the war, but I mean, support your veterans. Yeah. My gosh. All right, let me step off my soapbox. So when Rick reported to his local Navy recruiter, the only job that was available was a six-year enlistment for a naval nuclear power program. <laughs> I'm like, y'all yeah. don't like a custodial program <laughs> know, or like right. a maintenance program. I mean, I guess if it's either that or the infantry. I know. HR is not open yeah, right now. Yeah, seriously. Well, payroll. Can I have a desk job somewhere? Yeah, I'll answer, I'll answer some phone the phones. Calls. Yeah. So Rick took it. He said that when he walked into the school, uh, he read, Men that pass through here are about to receive a $50,000 education. And one of my classmates climbed up there one night and wrote, shoved up your butt a nickel at a time. which probably is probably the truth yeah rick was one of the few non-degreed guys going through the program and it was a program that was no cakewalk i mean and rick starts to like jot off the different classes he was taking you went through everything from all the chemistry the metallurgical aspects of reactors reactor physics pump theory electrical theory you name it and i was one of the few non-degreed guys so yeah i had to bust my butt and y'all, not that I for sure don't think like degreed people are smarter than non-degreed mm-hmm. people, but can you imagine going into a class that it's like advanced level chemistry and physics when the top, the most you've ever done was, was like high school yeah. five years ago. I mean, it's going to be out of your depth. I wonder if there was like any test to get in, you know, like you know. have to have, like you have to have a certain IQ to, to do this. Cause I sure as hell wouldn't oh, hell pass no. to get into that class. I wouldn't either. I would have no clue. Or, I mean, they were just in such dire need of people doing it. Yeah. Y'all, I'm sorry, baby Cades made a return. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you hear him in the background. Rick tells us that both of his sons were born while he was in the Navy and he wasn't even able to leave to go and meet his boys. He realized, though, that he had a passion for nuclear power and a high standard of performance was placed on him by his admiral. <laughs> He's like, I realize I have a passion for nuclear power. And it's like... <laughs> What, what does that mean? I mean, like, <laughs> like you believe in it so much, but like you, you find it that fascinating. Yeah. I mean, to each his own. Look, okay. It, to look, each his own. But that's why we're not in the nuclear field. So. Right. Cause you know what I have a passion for getting off of work. Yeah. That's my passion. Yeah. There ain't no job. Mm-hmm. Even even the pocket. Look, I enjoy doing this, but this is a hobby to me. This isn't yeah. like work. But like any job I've ever had, no matter who is my boss, I live for 430. I hear you. Peace out. I hear you. Yeah. That's my, my daydreams. But. So we learned that Admiral Rickover, which what a name. His <laughs> name was Rick. And Admiral Rickover <laughs> was considered the father of nuclear Navy. He created a reactor and a submarine that would make a submarine a true submarine. Never have 
to surface. Now, I'm sure those people who have now have to spend, you know, uh, six months at sea are like, you, Admiral Rickover. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we would like Thanks to... a lot. See, just because you made it possible for us to not see the sun for six months <laughs> doesn't mean we want it. One of the things that Admiral Rickover instilled in Rick was be responsible for every decision you make. Because in the nuclear reactor field, you could not just kill yourself. You could kill millions of people if things mm-hmm. go completely wrong. So it's 1980. It's one year after the accident. The answer to becoming less dependent on foreign oil, which is nuclear power, was slowly slipping away. Utility companies were canceling their plans to build 51 nuclear plants. The country was divided. Nuclear opponents who would shut down every reactor in the country simply are not in touch with our needs for tomorrow. But nuclear advocates who would pretend that nothing was changed by our vigil at Three Mile Island simply are out of touch with reality. There were those who wanted to just completely shut down every nuclear plant in the country. And those people were described as being out of touch for the needs of tomorrow. But then you had the people who basically wanted to pretend that this never happened. And those people were also out of touch with reality. I mean, so you've got the people that because of one very serious bad incident, you know, it's like, shut it all down. Mm -hmm. We don't, this is, and obviously that didn't happen because we have a nuclear power plant here in Louisiana. Yeah, which by the way, I didn't know until you mentioned it the first time. Uh-huh. Didn't okay. know. Where is it at? It's in St. Francisville. It's oh. for Entergy, the electricity company. Oh, dang. Yeah. Yeah. So Rick wanted to be a part of the solution. And I mean, that's how he ended up at Three Mile Island in the first place. He still believed in the benefits of nuclear power, but knew that there was work to be done. He was approached to be a part of a cleanup crew at Three Mile Island. It was something he was very proud to do. He wanted to be a part of the team that made nuclear power safe. So his attitude was, is let's not scratch this. I mean, this has great potential, but what can we do to make it safer? I mean, obviously this was a big cluster F. Mm -hmm. It was completely completely mishandled, not just in the way it was handled, but the way it was handled after the fact. So he wanted to be a part of the solution, this division that was in the country. So Rick set everything up. He made all of his arrangements. However, a few weeks before he was set to start, his wife was killed in a car wreck. I know. There was a car wreck leaving a bar one night and she did not make it. I don't want to talk about it. And that's horrible. When he, man, it, it got me because he was just like, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And then he started crying. He had to take a break from filming this documentary. I mean, oh, this is There's, 1980. This yeah. was 40 years ago and he is still destroyed. Oh, it doesn't this. go away. No. It does not go away. It, it's just, I, that caught me totally off guard. I was like, what? So in June of 1980, Rick and his two sons basically moved to Middletown mm-hmm. so that he could begin working on cleanup. And to me, I think a lot of it had to do with I think Rick wanted to obviously be a part of the solution but I think Rick wanted to distract himself with work I mean Mm -hmm. he was able to compartmentalize the pain of losing his wife by burying himself in in his job so a man who looks like he once played a Bond villain he was the director of the NRC's on-site office at Three Mm -hmm. Mile Island and his name was Lake but I'm just gonna call him the Bond villain what isn't he the one that's like he does interviews in this documentary yeah yeah. The bald headed yeah, guy. Yeah, the bald headed guy. Yeah. Yeah. He looks like a Bond villain. Yeah, I could see that. 
His job was to ensure that all workers were kept safe in the place where, even a year later, radiation was still a hundred times the lethal dose. Just because they got the reactor stabilized Mm -hmm. doesn't mean there still weren't issues because everything had to be cleaned up. They Mm -hmm. had to make sure that they couldn't even, it took years before they could even send a camera inside to see what the damage was. Yes. So you're potentially sitting on a on a, a ticking time bomb. Everyone at the cleanup were completely in unprecedented territory. I mean, how do you clean up a highly radioactive nuclear meltdown? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want that job. No. So we learned that first there's the stabilization phase, which takes a couple of months. Then over the next year, you disassemble the core to put fuel into canisters and ship ship it off site. Now, I'm going to call them TMI because that's how they, but it, it's Three Mile Island. Mm-hmm. So TMI costs Wait, seven. But don't you think that's kind of like ironic because TMI in today's too much information. Too much information. <laughs> And th- oh. like that was the whole thing with them is they didn't give us enough information. Oh, how ironic is that? I know. So we'll call it TMI. <laughs> In E-TMI, not enough TMI. <laughs> they spent $700 million to build Unit 2. It operated for 90 days. And it cost over a billion dollars to clean it up. The cleanup job was outsourced to a company called Bechtel. Now, Bechtel was the largest privately owned construction enterprise in the world who was also very politically connected. I think there was maybe it was Ronald Reagan, one of maybe his inauguration or something. Mm -hmm. And there was the chairman. Oh, yeah. For Bechtel. So as any huge corporation, they were they knew to be politically connected because mm-hmm. apparently that's how you can help get yourself out of, out of a bind. Bechtel realized that the cleanup needed to be done safely, but also there was this sense of urgency to it because the company that hired them, they wanted to get this all this stuff cleaned up so that they could start, they could turn it back on and start working again. Right. What we learned is within the reactor, there was nine feet of highly radioactive water in the basement which needed to be removed. There was highly radioactive material that needed to be removed. And finally, the removal of the melted fuel core inside the reactor vessel itself needed to be removed. Where do you put it? I know. Like, when like you where, remove like it? Like, when you remove it, where does it go? That's a good question. I don't know. Like, in Chernobyl, because I just rewatched that series again. Mm-hmm. So they had like the men that died during the initial um, explosion and the firefighters and stuff. Uh-huh. They their caskets were wooden boxes and they put them in like these metal tombs and like welded it shut, buried them, but then put cement on top of all of that. Well, yeah, because they yeah. just being in their presence could yeah kill you. So I was like, dang. But I wonder what you do with like all the 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 waste product from this disaster because you know they don't they don't really kind of go go yeah into they it. really don't like you can't exactly just dump it in a river right well and then on top of that we're back to this venting problem where for over a month radioactive gases had to be vented into the air but it's like rick said it had to be done yeah like they couldn't there was no alternative it, no and keeping it in there was not an option because that was going to cause problems too but venting this radioactive these radioactive gases it scared the community even even more, and it brought on it brought on quite a bit of anger. People were terrified. We've already been exposed. Our children, our family, everybody's been exposed to, to God knows how much, and then they want to vent on top of it. The people's feeling was summed up very quickly. All for releasing the Krypton applause. once again was being told by the higher ups that they had nothing to worry about but the trust was completely lost at this point and the government 
was backing the company leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I wouldn't trust them. A lot of citizens chose to evacuate while the plant vented. A meeting was held with the director of the NRC, our Bond villain, and the local townspeople like basically come to him and, and say, every decision that you make about nuclear power, there are people like us that are involved, and you have to take that into consideration. But the, the Bond villain, he's basically like... Well, the community was very concerned about anything nuclear going on. There's an air of distrust. So people say this, that, they mislead this. I don't have time for drama in my life, okay? And emotion, uh, I, I respect people's emotions. I respect Joyce and those people very, very much. But I'm so saddened by them being further traumatized by scare stories and the news. Look, I respect the concerns of the locals. They're basically being traumatized by these news reports that are these scare tactics. And, and he, there is no bones about this man. He basically says they're hysterical and they have non-meaningful arguments and they are just creating drama. To which I respond, like, I understand that... There are things that the public don't know that you know. Mm-hmm. And so things are being said from the media. I mean, it still happens today. I mean, mm-hmm. the media tell stories and it's like these scare tactics when behind the scenes, it's you're turning it into something it's yeah, not. Yeah, they're trying to sensationalize right. what's happening. Exactly. Because it's all about numbers. I get it. But at the end of the day... You have to understand that these people are not coming from a place of trying to be quote unquote confrontational. Mm -hmm. They were lied to. Yeah. From the get go. I mean, so of course, like these are people who at one point genuinely trusted Mm-hmm. the government but the government lied to them and yeah. so now they don't trust them anymore i mean and it's- really i don't i didn't see anything about i know one resident was like you know after a, a natural disaster you can go you can go back and rebuild and she's like when we went back our problem was still there exactly and like from what i have learned in this documentary like nobody was really telling them how to how to fix the problem or like what the problem actually was like how do you get radiation off of things like, right you, you, what do you do? When they were saying it's safe, when they were taking radioactive measures, and like in the last episode, we learned that the meter that they were using taps out a certain. Yeah. So we don't know it how just high taps it out. went. Yeah, yeah, we have no d- clue how high it went. So because the accident had really cast a doubt on the future of nuclear power, the situation started to almost turn political, and there was a push to clean everything up faster. And because of this, Rick started to notice that shortcuts were being done. I mean, you got to understand, like within this reaction. The radiation was so high that people could only go in there for a few minutes at a time. Mm -hmm. So, of course, that's going to make it a long process to clean up because we have to first and foremost think about the safety of the workers. Mm -hmm. They can't go in there for hours. They'll die. They they will die. Rick tells us that basically Bechtel had this attitude of get it done no matter what attitude. So to vent the gases, Bechtel built a huge filtration train pumping the radioactive gases out of there. And in the process, they put duct tape over it. tape is good for a lot of things you can ask any redneck they can do anything with duct tape and bailing wire but you can't stop radioactivity with it (laughs) now duct tape is great (laughs) but it doesn't stop radiation okay (laughs) i mean i know we look at duct tape as like a fix-all for everything but i don't think it can stand up to radiation no And it wasn't long before the venting had to stop because these high levels of radiation were seeping out and alarms were going off again. You don't say. 
Shockingly. So Bechtel needed to provide the cleanup crew with shields to protect them from the radiation and were asking people to volunteer to use them to go in without knowing exactly the proficiency of these shields. They made sure to film all of this so that they look like they are at the utmost in safety, you know, Mm -hmm. but nobody actually knew, okay? So of course the media suggested that the slow progress was because the cleanup crew didn't know what they were doing. And that's the media that needs to sit down and shut up Mm -hmm. because they don't know anything about cleaning up what is almost a nuclear meltdown. That built upon the frustration. The cleanup crew was going over budget and they were behind schedule. And so because of this, Bechtel was basically given a milestone list. Mm -hmm. You will not get any more money till you have accomplished this milestone. Again, takes the idea of efficiency off. It basically, it takes away the idea of let's do it as quick as we can so we can prove to everybody that this is safe and we can get it back up and running again. But that that's a mistake. It was around this time that a guy by the name of Larry King, not the Larry King that we all think of, (laughs) he was hired and given the slow progress of the a cleanup, you know, right out the gate, Larry and Bechtel didn't agree. The executive vice president was unhappy with the way things were moving. So they decided to hire me, figuring that I could help out. And I got off to a bad start with Bechtel because they were trying to get it done fast. He was, he said, we're not going to cut corners. I mean, just to hit these milestones. His attitude was get it done right the first time. Yeah. The milestone that started the trouble was the reactor building polar crane. And I know it's like, what the hell is that? Basically, the accident caused melting down the core, creating debris at the bottom of the reactor. And the idea was to use a polar crane to lift the reactor up and clean everything out from underneath it. The polar crane that was down there had been exposed to radiation and it needed to be replaced. Rick decided to review the modification plans for the polar crane and there was no one had reviewed any modifications. Like there was nothing done. Yeah. Which meant that the head manager on site for Bechtel said he didn't want to spend the money. So Rick, Larry and another guy we're going to call Engineer Ed, they made a big stink about the lack of safety. Mm-hmm. And while well, engineer Ed said the crane needed to be needed to be load tested before it was used as well. Because Again, it had deteriorated yes. from being exposed to this radiation Correct. for so long. Yeah. Right. I mean, this thing, if it's like, if it puts something, it's a crane. Yeah. And if it, it's picking this reactor up and if it picks up something wrong, it could cause... It could drop the reactor. And create another... And create an, yeah. another catastrophe. So Larry went to the next in line and he said that he refused to sign off on using the polar crane. That didn't get him good reactions. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I say higher ups, I mean the people that own the plant, Bechtel, the yeah. NRC, all of these people were like, poo-poo on you. I mean, like, we're, we're moving forward. I mean, mm-hmm. we got to... We're losing millions by the day. I mean, screw safety. Rick says something that is like just the truest statement if ever there was a true statement. Organizations rot from the top down. They do not rot from the bottom up. And without management establishing control parameters, setting standards for behaviors in a nuclear plant, he says, you're flirting with tickling the belly of the dragon. (laughs) But this was dangerous. The reactor was still volatile. Mm -hmm. A nuclear meltdown could still happen, especially if human stupidity takes place. Which we know happens quite often. I mean, it just happened, y'all. If this human stupidity caused these radiations to get to a certain level, I mean, no one in Rick's lifetime would be able to access the core to 
ensure safety to everyone affected by it. Mm-hmm. This could affect everywhere from eastern Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C. They would have to evacuate indefinitely. Yeah. If the polar crane lift happens the way Bechtel is instruction, there is a high potential for loss of life. I mean, people will die. So it's March 1983. It's two weeks before the polar crane lift milestone is set to take place. The community is focused on two issues, dealing with the emerging impacts of the cleanup and the possible startup of the unit that didn't malfunction. So mm-hmm. the company, TMI, is saying, hey, um, can we start Unit 1 again? They had shut it down. It had been shut down for three years since all of this happened. And they didn't. the plant owners didn't see a reason why they weren't running it because right. they need to start making money, you know? Did, they didn't tell the residents around, like in Middletown, like that they were going to restart it, right? Oh, yeah, because the pup, they were fighting back. They were protesting. Okay. Um, Joy said that she noticed that government officials were like, when they were out protesting them opening this, reopening this plant, like government officials were writing their license plate numbers down. It really frightened me. And so I called Eric Epstein in Middletown at their meeting headquarters. And I said, Eric, do you hear that? He goes, yeah, Joyce, we're, we're, our, our phones are being tapped. So at the end of the day, the plant wanted to make money and were and were willing to do anything to start Unit 1 to start making money. Rick says he originally believed that the protesters were just uneducated and misinformed. They didn't understand what the capability of the plant actually was. He started to change his mind as he lived amongst the Middletown residents. These weren't people making a fuss for no reason. They mm-hmm. had repeatedly been lied to, not to mention exposed to who knows what. He said these are some of the nicest people you would ever meet. We we find out that Rick gets introduced to a lady named Betty. Mm-hmm. Betty also happens to be the mother of our friend Nicole. I know. Isn't that so cute? I love how they wrapped all that in. I know. That Nicole was adorable. is the one who her house was like across the street. Yeah, from. she was the, the little girl that we, yeah. So Nicole says that she loved Rick's twang and Rick took to her as well. Like mm-hmm. Rick said that Nicole is the closest thing that he has ever had as a daughter. Yeah. Nicole was six when the accident happened and 10 when Rick and her mom started dating. She confided she in Rick. I always had these reoccurring nightmares. Nikki told me a lot about her fears with Three Mile Island. She did tell me one time when she wasn't as worried about it anymore because she knew I'd take care of them. They stopped because she knew Rick would take care of her. Oh no, isn't that so sweet? And you can tell that meant a lot to him as well when he when he said this. So this was all circling around the polar crane milestone, which was moving forward. Larry, Rick, and Engineer Ed were begging plant officials to review everything for overall safety. Like they weren't asking them to not do it. They were asking them to postpone it right. until they can ensure that the equipment that was being used is is safe. I mean, th- that's common sense to me. And yeah. knowing what the possible outcome is I'm really honestly surprised that the higher ups are still willing to risk it and move forward. Well, just greed because I, it was costing them so much but money. Like, even still, like, are you still going to risk like permanently shutting your plant down? Exactly. Like, that's that's I'm still surprised that they're willing to to take that risk and like being sued. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine? You know, Bechtel, the company, the subcontractor, they didn't want to hear anything about this, and so our Bond villain, uh, Lake, he basically says he didn't agree with Rick. Parks felt that they weren't following the procedures well, and there could be an explosion of some sort. It's not safe, and bad things are going to happen when I use that crane. I think I looked at it, and I didn't agree with him. Okay, and if the merits of the argument don't warrant action, I'm done with it. 
the head NRC agent on site, Lake Barrett, was letting them get away with it, saying, we're going to do this with Bechtel Construction, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission can take their silly-ass rules and shove them. And whatever he told me, I didn't obviously go along with it. He may not have liked it. He said, well, because of the procedures and this and this and this. And I did not go into the the drama and the soap operas about whose procedures were the better procedures. And he closed the door on it. He mm-hmm. said, this is this is a, a difference in um, policies. You know, Bechtel has this certain policy and procedure. Uh, Rick and Larry and all them, they want to follow these, these protocols. And from what Lake could tell, he didn't feel like the drama was needed. And he didn't agree with them. Again, I cannot believe this man is sitting on TV saying all I this. Know. Especially given everything that we know that happened. The NRC approved moving forward with the Polar Crane milestone and leaked Rick's name to Bechtel. The director of NRC, of course, denies leaking Rick's name. He says, you know, it's a small company. They yeah, knew who the I'm whistleblowers sure. were. I'm like, oh, girl. Larry King says that having the NRC regulate Bechtel was like letting the fox watch the hen house. They weren't regulating it. Yeah. I mean, it's a government agency, and I hate to say it, but what do we know about a lot of government agencies? I mean, it, you can persuade them one yeah. way or another. Larry refused to sign off on the polar crane for Bechtel, and he was fired because of it. Engineer Ed was ordered to take a psych evaluation, and he was not allowed back on the job site until he passed it. And Rick said that he knew that he was next. He went to go to work, and his van wouldn't start one morning. He found a bag of marijuana in his toolbox, and he said, well, you know, it wasn't Christmas. So I knew it wasn't mine. I didn't put it in there. He flushed I mean, the bag that, down the toilet. How lucky of him to know. happen. He happened to have found it. Yeah. And it, it just so happened that that day as he was driving into work, he got stopped and his van got searched. Which has never happened up to that point before. He had never been searched before in and his time working there. They didn't all, find and anything. Coincidentally, yeah. he's getting searched that right. day. Once he got into the building, he realized that he had lost his credentials to get into where the polar crane was mm-hmm. operating. On March 17, 1983, five days before the polar crane was to take place, we meet a woman named Billy. Billy works for the Government Accountability Project. She gets this anonymous call from a man, and he basically says he has a problem that's going on at a plant that he doesn't want to identify, but he needs her help. And... For shortened for the Government Accountability Project, it's called GAP. GAP was the leading organization representing nuclear whistleblowers. Billy asked the man to meet, so they met at a bar. And the man told Billy that he would be holding a tube filled with engineer drawings if she needed to know who he was. Not con- inconspicuous at all, right? Right, right. So at first, the man just sat in silence, and we learned that the man is Rick. Like, he sat there next to Billy, awkward and uncomfortable, and, like, (laughs) finished his beer. And then he said, okay, uh, you want to go sit down and have a talk about this? Let's go sit in that booth over there. So Billy herself was um, a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. And in the course of her time as a whistleblower, she actually lost custody of her kids. I mean, it got that bad. Rick rolled out the drawings to Billy and he started explaining the situation. And the documents proved that not only were protocols not being followed to ensure safety, but management knew about it and signed off on it. The NRC knew about it and signed off on it. So time was scarce. Uh, The NRC commissioners had a vote set the next week to allow the cleanup to proceed. They had five days to put a stop to this. Five days. And Billy told Rick that he had to move forward and warning about this. He said, you know, I don't want to become the next Karen Silkwood. 
So who the hell is Karen Silkwood? Oh, bless it. To learn who Karen Silkwood is, we have to go to Crescent, Oklahoma in 1974. Karen was a 28-year-old union activist working at Kerr McGee's Cimarron facility as a lab technician. It was a nuclear facility. She began reporting issues about the failure to keep workers safe. She died in a car crash on her way to meet a New York Times reporter. So just to clarify, as she's on her way to give proof to a New York Times reporter, she gets killed in a single car wreck. Yeah. And the documents that she was bringing um, conveniently disappeared. Uh, they're no longer there. Yeah. But it kind of blew up in everyone's face because there was an autopsy, autopsy conducted and it showed that she was contaminated with plutonium, and which is traces of radiation poisoning in her blood. So we're back to March 18th, 1983. It's four days before the polar crane lift. Rick is sent to speak to the legal director of Gap, a guy named Tom Devine. Tom says that Gap had worked on some 8,000 whistleblower cases, but Rick's case had much higher stakes than most. There was uh, such a sense of urgency. If the polar crane dropped the reactor vessel head in the wrong spots, that would trigger a catastrophic meltdown that could take down Pennsylvania to Washington, D.C. The East Coast could be uninhabitable indefinitely. I mean, this could be Can apocalyptic. imagine? No. The East, like the whole East Coast, like that's insane that they're yeah. willing to risk this. Over, over money. Over money. I mean, it eludes me. I just don't understand. So Tom, Billy, and Rick worked through the weekend to put together an affidavit to stop the polar crane. The affidavit was to be presented to the NRC. Rick had very little faith in the NRC, Hmm. so Tom suggested that Rick go public about this. Rick knew it would have been the nail in the coffin for the nuclear industry and for his career. As scared as Rick was with the handling of Three Mile Island, he still believed in the nuclear industry. Yeah, he was was a big proponent of it. So this whole decision is very hard for him exactly and he knew that Bechtel the Three Mile Island owners would stop at nothing to silence him and he had many moments of why am I doing this his girlfriend Betty wanted Rick to just quit and walk away Rick says he he couldn't get Betty to understand the damage of him not exposing this this started to take a toll on their relationship during this time Rick came home to his apartment and he noticed his door was slightly ajar Rick knew someone had been in his apartment so he made his boy stay at his neighbor's house and he went inside he went to his bedroom and he grabbed his gun he pretty much cleared the apartment his apartment had been completely ransacked but nothing had been taken mm-hmm. but where they focused in on was where it was a closet where he kept all of his evidence against right. through my island but it just so happens all that ev- evidence was with tom divine in dc huh. so had they gotten their hands on this had this disappeared there would be no evidence to prove anything he was saying yeah and like what would have happened if he were at home i know you know well would, that's would what pissed up, him off yeah because he's like his neighbor said that she had heard someone in his mm-hmm. his apartment i mean she probably just assumed it was him so she didn't really question it but this or like but like worse like what if his kids were home right you know well That's this so triggers scary. rick from being scared to being angry that scared me beyond reason for my family's life after my apartment was broken into i took that as a message that your sons are vulnerable and we will get you through them That's exactly how I took that. And that made me an enemy for life. Because you don't threaten my sons. That's a step too far. I will kill for them. And not hesitate. 
I knew that they were out for blood and they weren't going to stop. It was a determination to not let them get away with it. I mean, I didn't know what else I could do. I would tell the world what I thought they needed to know before they were going to do it. And I went public. And he said, you know what? It's one thing for you to invade my space and the safety of my home, but you could have done it when my kids were at home. Mm -hmm. And that's when he realized that nothing was going to stop the higher ups at Three Mile Island from shutting him up. And it backfired on him because this was the final straw. He said, I'm going to expose them to everybody. And it was time to go public. Mm-hmm. And that's how the episode ends. Yeah. It's so, so dramatic on, on the little reenactment. But rightly so. I mean, how, someone invades your space when you're trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And someone invades your safe space. And that just, it's terrifying. I mean, I'm like, you, you know what's, you'd have been home. Yeah, you know what's happened to people before who tried to do this. They ended up dead. Or their kids got taken away. Their lives were ruined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said it's enough. Yeah. Well, y'all stay tuned for next week. We will conclude this episode. Yeah, that's the last episode of this one, so. And we will have a babysitter next week, so. Hopefully you guys enjoyed our little guest host here. (laughs) All right, y'all. Well, we will talk to y'all later. Bye, guys. This has been a Dive In Media production. Executive producers are Casey Forbes and Sarah Cuvion. Email your story suggestions and questions to Let the Good Crimes Roll at ProtonMail.com. Follow along with us on Facebook at Let the Good Crimes Roll and Instagram at LTGCR Podcast.